Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am in New York City. In Washington, D.C., with us today, we have David Sanger of the New York Times, and Ed Luce of the Financial Times. And in London, I think, we have Corey Shockey of S, uh, General Shockey, as we like to refer to her. <laughs> uh, and as, as Nerd Nation seems to be addressing her. Um, Corey, before we dive into this, did you like the rendering of you at, in your cover in the... the, the Sweet Jesus. I wish I could unsee that (laughs) so, so, so much. It is now my standard proof of two things. First, how devoted deep state nerds are to the fun and games of this conversation, which I love them for. And second, how horrific and grisly the, the carrying out of that devotion is. I so did not need that visual. (laughs) Well, David Sanger, I have to say, has been has been a little bit more canny with regard to his book cover, which was previewed in the past couple of days for his upcoming book, because nowhere on it is a place to insert his face um, or use it in any way to alter his image or our perception of it. I was going to put Corey's face on it to see if that sold the book better. <laughs> David, that would be a nice thing to say, except your book is called The Perfect Weapon. <laughs> okay, deep state nerds, I do not want a Twitter conversation about this. <laughs> um, it's very exciting about your book, David. The timing is fantastic, um, uh, given everything that's going on in the world right now. Um, and, and you know, you've obviously risen to a very high level in the journalistic stratosphere because you've finally gotten to the point where your name is almost bigger than the title of the book. Yeah, well, that that part I'll have to blame on Corey or somebody, right? (laughs) (laughs) Looks pretty good. And you're done writing it, right? So you're like happy. I'm done writing it. Out out June... uh... Uh, June nineteenth. It's never, never too early for you to put in your pre-order, David. It's a perfect Father's Day <laughs> gift for everybody. Um, uh, uh, because who, who doesn't like a book about cyber? Um, well, th- let me start with you, David. You know, I mean, there's so many things to talk about, but I have this sense of a kind of giant clockwork moving in the world, and it's not to say that. I believe in a conspiracy theory, but there's so many things going on right now that affect so many other things. You know, there's so many moving pieces. Um, And we've had a lot of talk about the Koreas, but the Koreas connect to Iran and Iran connects to Israel and Saudi Arabia and the Middle East and 
initiatives of the US and initiatives of the Europeans and so forth. And, and, and you get the sense that there's some movement and there's some real change of what, and I'd sort of like to break it down to help um, Nerd Nation understand it a little bit. You wrote a great analysis um, in the New York Times uh, just the other day, sort of giving us sort of your sense of, of the, you know, what's afoot and what the stakes are in the Koreas right now. Can you do the, you know, the two minute version of that? Sure. So I've been in, I was in Seoul until uh, yesterday and spent a week there. It was uh, great to be, to be back there. There's a very different mood uh, among the South Koreans uh, than there is here in Washington. So here in Washington, the mood is very much, we've all been to this movie before. And this, by the way, a mood that I share, right, as, as any good deep stater would, right, that uh, we've seen the North Koreans offer before to give up their weapons in return for a peace treaty and the assurance that the United States would never invade their country and so forth and so on. And we all sort of yawn and say, yeah, right, they're going to turn over all their production facilities and all, all their weapons. And by the way, we can't even agree within our own intelligence community whether they have 20 weapons or whether they have 60. And, you know, how would you verify it? I mean, so we're full of all the questions about what can go wrong here and what went wrong when they made similar commitments in the 1992 accord with South Korea, in the 2005 accord with uh, Condoleezza Rice and the the uh, Bush administration, uh, again in 2007, 2008, when they blew up a reactor uh, cooling tower. And then, of course, the reactor was up and running again a few years later. So uh, we're all saying, yeah, sure. In South Korea, they're all saying, this is great. It's going to really reduce the tensions and so forth and so on. So why is this? How could this possibly be? Well, for one thing, you have a new leader who until a few months ago, whenever we wrote about him, we would make the point that he executed his uncle and nerve-gassed his half-brother. But now he's a great statesman. Um, the second thing that uh, is changed here is that the uh, president of South Korea, uh, Moon Jae-in, really wants to do anything he can to both de-escalate the tension and keep Donald Trump from having a reason to take military action. And to some degree, Moon has done a very brilliant job of boxing the president in, because I think while the president rightly takes a little bit of credit here for forcing the, the North Koreans to the table with his threats and with the sanctions, the fact of the matter is that as long as there seems to be an active peace process negotiation underway, it would be almost impossible for the United States to launch a military strike. And so all that Kim needs to do here is keep this process underway. And there are a lot of others who are, have an interest in that, especially the Chinese, who just want to keep the status quo. And the dirty little secret is the South Koreans just want the status quo because they know that they've been um, vulnerable to a North Korean nuclear weapon for years. The only reason Donald Trump's unhappy about it right now is they can also build ICBMs that might be able to strike the U.S. But if you keep the status quo, the South Koreans are right living with the threat they've been living with for some time. Well, that's, yeah, and that's very, very thoughtful analysis. But let's drill down into a couple components of it. Uh, let me start with you, Corey. Um, uh, as, as far as... Uh, you know, as, as, as far as this goes, um, 
with the South Koreans wanting the status quo, there seems to be you know, rumblings afoot that Kim will give up some weapons or some part of his program or make some kind of concession in exchange for U.S. troops leaving South Korea. And in fact, Secretary Mattis made reference to this the other day. Um, and so you can understand that David's comment, I think, might be a bit of a double-edged sword in that too much progress might produce the departure of U.S. troops, which would be completely, by the way, in keeping with Trump's approach to many world affairs, which is to withdraw and go back home. I'm wondering what you think about all that. Yeah, I agree with that judgment, David. I do think President Trump's reflexes are to push responsibility for outcomes back onto the shoulders of America's regional allies and to accept any outcome that, that meets his uh, U.S.-only objectives. So, so, yeah, the South Koreans and the Japanese ought to be very worried about a series of potential outcomes. One is that uh, Kim Jong-un keeps his nuclear weapons but gives up his ICBM program, in which case the U.S. wouldn't feel directly threatened anymore, and President Trump might be willing to trade a lot of things to get that, leaving Japan and South Korea vulnerable and separated from the American umbrella. Second thing I think they should be worried about is President Trump wanting an immediate, uh, something to show immediately, something to show in the, in the course of his presidential term, where a, a more reasonable approach to confidence-building measures that increase and over time give us the confidence to make a deal where we trade something appreciable something maybe even less important than American presence on the Korean Peninsula in return for the North Koreans uh, walking back their nuclear program. I can't myself figure out, again, I'm not a Korea expert, but, but I haven't heard plausible cases from Korea experts about why the North Koreans are doing this. It seems to me there are three possibilities. One is now that he's got nuclear weapons and the ability to hit the United States, He's newly confident that we will accept him as a nuclear power and, and reduce sanctions. Second possibility is that the sanctions are biting so tightly and the Chinese complying so much that, that he worries about his ability to remain in power unless he loosens up. A third possibility, and there are more than three, would be that he's watched enough Hollywood movies that he'd like to live the boring consumer existence of my hometown of Sonoma, California, and, and therefore just doesn't want to do this anymore. Lots of possibilities. I sure don't think the Trump White House knows what the answer is on those motivations. And that, too, would worry me if I were in Seoul, South Korea, or in Tokyo, Japan. One thing oh, clear, I'm sorry. Having, he doesn't, having, having he doesn't need that. to go to... Um, he doesn't need to go to Sonoma to get the wine. He seemed that the train he took up to China seems well scotched. <laughs> Excellent point. Oh, I'm sorry. One last thing I should say, and I will say quickly, which is I wouldn't read too much into the Secretary of Defense's statement that uh, U.S. troops on the Korean Peninsula were a negotiable issue, because I think consistently 
over the Secretary of Defense's tenure, he has emphasized that diplomacy is at the front of our policy and the military issues, use of force, presence of troops, weapons transfers, are all subsidiary issues that follow a diplomatic understanding. So I would take Jim saying that as as a context that this is a negotiation. We're not going to prejudice at the start. We're going to let the diplomats figure out what needs to be done. Yeah, by the way, David, I was going to go another way with the Sonoma reference, uh, perhaps distastefully referring to the recent wildfires and suggest Sonoma is actually a place that you you, you could write a book about called Fire and Fury. Uh, <laughs> but David, while you're, while you're throwing these in, I was going to make a point that when the Korean negotiations are going better than the White House Correspondents' Dinner, you know something has turned upside down in the world. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have to say, I think the Korean negotiations are showing a good deal more uh, sort of uh, a good, uh, good judgment. sense of humor on the part of the participants um, than, than some of the participants in the White House Correspondents' Dinner. But, I, you know, I think within... My joke there, and Corey's point, David's point, Ed, there is a, you know, there's another sort of scenario, which is, for the first time in the history of negotiations like this, North Korea has some real substantial leverage, given the the the, the nuclear program and delivery program it's developed, and it might be that Kim is smart enough to say, well, I can give up a little bit of this this leverage that. Actually, I never want to use because if I use it, it's the end of everything. In in exchange for some things that may benefit me in real life, whether it's economic or the pullout of U.S. troops, and so he can swap the unthinkable in exchange for the useful. Um, and that suggests to me, as some people have observed, that you know Kim is really driving these negotiations. Uh, and by the way, on uh, another point, because a lot of people talk about the, you know, Trump Nobel Prize, and we can get to that in a second. Um, you know, Moon ran on a on a on a platform of trying to make some progress on this front, and and I think you know we as Americans tend to give too little credit to the Koreans for having moved this thing forward, even if Moon, for very calculated reasons, wants to go and give a lot of credit to Trump. Anyway, Ed, I'm just wondering what your take is on all this. Uh, well, I think both both Korean leaders um, have, have shown quite a lot of similarity on this in playing Trump very well. Moon Jae-in's um, uh, recommendation of a Nobel Prize for Trump is, is a classic way of playing him. Um, but cl clearly, Kim has got a lot more leverage today than the day Trump came to office. You know, the, the, the exponential growth in, 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 in missile um, uh, range and the uh, yield of his um, nuclear warheads since Trump came to office has, uh, you know, uh, David would know better, but I think he gained more in the last year than sort of the previous four, a lot quicker than American intelligence or anybody else had expected. So, yes, he has a lot more leverage. I suspect that the sort of um, adulation and extraordinary media coverage that uh, he's uh, been receiving in South Korea uh, and uh, the warmth of the reception he, he got is something that's, uh, you know, in common with Trump, he, he, he probably rather enjoys. So he's getting a taste 
for celebrity um, uh, that, you know, I think would fit well with the, the kinds of economic benefits that could flow very, very quickly um, from a summit with Trump. So if he uses that leverage, uh, that much greater leverage he's got today, um, uh, if he expends the ICBMs, whatever it is that, that is the price for Trump to declare a summit a success, uh, then what we'll, we will see is a very rapid loosening of Chinese sanctions um, and other sanctions. Uh, we will see um, quite a lot of sunshine economics coming from Moon Jae-in um, and, uh, you know, game, set and match situation to Kim Jong-un. Uh, as, as both Corey and David say, my, my concern, as it is with Trump's effect anywhere in the world, would be the impact on America's allies. And Japan, obviously, in this case, would be the loser. China would be the ultimate winner. I think both Koreas would move. I think South Korea would move into China's orbit gradually, as has been happening. Yeah, well, I mean, the Russians would benefit, too, if the United States withdrew its presence in the region. And frankly, um, you know, it's a pretty good bet that over the course of the next several years, one way or another, the United States is going to uh, draw down its 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 troops in the region somewhat. Uh, before we move on to how this connects to the Middle East, uh, David, I was just wondering if you would like to award the Nobel Prize to Donald Trump. Well, I think that Donald Trump <laughs> should get this, but I think he's going to have to share it with sort of the Rothkopf, you know, deep state sort of community. Do you think that there should be sort of a simultaneous award? Uh, I. The, the, that, 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 that would fit in here. Um, no, I mean, in all seriousness, if whoever it is, whether it's um, Donald Trump uh, or whether it is um, Kim Jong-un or whether it's President Moon, can solve what has been the biggest nuclear crisis, on run, running crisis since 1994 uh, in the world, they would deserve a uh, Nobel Prize. The issue is that the um, Nobel Committee would have no problem awarding it to Moon, would probably have some hesitance appointing it, uh, awarding it to Kim Jong-un. And I have a real hard time imagining the debate inside the Nobel Committee when somebody suggested giving it to Donald Trump. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd want to be around. I want to be the fly on the wall for that debate. You know? Absolutely. Especially because they gave one to Barack Obama before he did anything, right? Well, they also gave one to Yasser Arafat after he did a lot of bad stuff. You know, exactly. they've given they've given them to some pretty nasty people, including, you know, um, well, I hate to say this, but my former colleague, Dr. Kissinger, had some blemishes on his record as well. <laughs> Just one or two. Yeah, well, even even Aung San Suu Kyi. I mean, would 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 we uh, give her an Nobel Prize now? Ed. No, well, I don't know if we'd give it to her now, but 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 you know, you can just imagine them sitting around going, well, you know, he's a serial sex abuser and he's a crook and he may be indicted shortly after he gets the Nobel Prize and um, you know, he's bad with refugees and he's destabilizing other parts of the world and he's undermining the international system. But yeah, sure. Let's got the Korea Nobel. thing. Also, remembering how, how political these are, I mean, even President Obama's aides conceded when he got the award in um, uh, late 2009, I guess he, he actually formally received it in 2010, um, uh, they admitted that this was mostly an award for not being George Bush. 
Yeah, well, Donald Trump is certainly eligible for that particular note. <laughs> uh, um, you know, as are we all. I mean, that's a great prize. Um, the, but, you know, having, having said that, let's turn a little bit um, uh, uh, to, to something that's related to this. And, and, it, and it's been underplayed a little bit, but in the past week, momentum has grown in a number of ways. Uh, around the idea that the United States will pull out of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, and President Macron reported that that was what he thought the president was going to do after he interceded to try to get him not to do that. Uh, I, there was no sign that Chancellor Merkel had changed his mind at all. Um, and recently, there's been a kind of ratcheting up of activity, uh, including Pompeo on his first trip as Secretary of State in Europe, saying probably we'll pull out or implying that. And then most recently, in the past couple of days, the Israelis ratcheting things up with the Iranians, first of all, striking them in Syria, which raises the possibility of a conflict um, with I Iran, which I, you know, I, you know, some people thought would be kind of a uh, a just you know a distraction or desire to sort of make Iran look the bad guy if they strike the Israelis back, um, and then uh, uh, an announcement by the prime minister that he's going to reveal, uh, according to the Israeli press, information that's showing that Iran is in violation of the JCPOA. Uh, we are recording this before that announcement is made and can only speculate at what it is. And there's already some speculation that it's a hoax or overstated. Um, but clearly, Bibi Netanyahu is actively working, seemingly in concert with Secretary Pompeo, perhaps, you know, given his predilection for these things, you know, with back-channel phone calls with Bolton or somebody else, or, 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 or who knows with whom, the Saudis, to, to try to come up with an excuse for the U.S. to get out of the JCPOA in a way that will put the blame on the Iranians and thus possibly allow the U.S. to proceed with a deal with the Koreas, which you know it seems that Trump really wants. Um, and so I'd like to kind of uh, you know get that uh, uh, you know get your various perspectives on these recent moves and how the moves in the Middle East tie to the Koreas. And let me go back and start with David, and then we'll circle around. Well, as you said, we don't know yet exactly what the Israelis think they have. Um, until uh, a few weeks ago, when you asked U.S. intelligence, have you found any evidence that uh, the Iranians were in significant violation of the deal? Uh, the answer was no, which is why the secretary, the previous secretary of state, um, Rex Tillerson, remember him? Uh, big guy, white hair, used to run Exxon. Um, uh, he used to say that the Iranians were in violation of the spirit of the deal, which is the line that you use when you can't actually find a violation within the four corners of the deal. Exactly right. <laughs> okay. So um, the, the problem that President Trump has here is that if he pulls out he, without claiming a reason that the Iranians are in violation, it looks like he's making the first move to actually violate what's inside the deal itself, because the sanctions relief that he would fail to renew 
would basically put the U.S. in violation of its side of the deal. So they're somewhat desperate to find some reason to make the case that the Iranians were the first violators. And uh, maybe the Israelis have evidence of a secret facility, uh, some kind of activity, something like that, that would fit the bill there. But I can tell you, given the political mood here, whatever the Israelis come up with is going to undergo some pretty heavy scrutiny to figure out whether or not uh, it's real or not. To your second point, David, how does this connect to Korea? I mean, the theory has always been that uh, that Trump wants a Korea deal because it would be his deal, right? And that uh, it, as soon as he just declared that it was the best deal on earth, everybody would say it's the best deal on earth. My own view is that the Iran deal creates a very high barrier for the president in dealing with North Korea because... Um, the uh, Obama administration got 97% of the fuel in Iran shipped out of the country. And if they shipped out that much of the out of the country, it strikes me that Donald Trump would have to get more than 97% and all of the weapons, and we don't know how many there are, shipped out of North Korea. That's a pretty tall order. Um. That's true. Now, there was a story that broke um, uh, today also in which the um, head of Iran's Atomic Energy Agency uh, organization said that Iran has the technical capability to enrich uranium to a higher level than it could before the deal. Uh, right. Salahi said this, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So that suggests you know, that some progress has been made in some ways. And, and regardless of what Netanyahu may say, this will certainly be seized upon by the U.S., don't you think? Yeah, I mean, the, the way that you would get to a higher enrichment level is if they have a more sophisticated kind of centrifuge, which they were working on before the deal. Remember, the centrifuges that they took offline were, were sort of 1960s, 70s technology. And so to, to get to a higher enrichment level faster... You just need a much more sophisticated centrifuge. And I'm sure they have them. Uh, the question is, do they work in large numbers? And they won't know that until they can actually start running uh, uranium through them. Those are the kind of centrifuges they used at the Nuclear Weapons Club when we were in high school. They were the kind that you were assembling in the basement in New Jersey as a sort of side project with your friends. Yeah, amazing what you can make with a used ping pong table. Um, <laughs> Corey, um, it, it, it's, it, even, even if Netanyahu's statement, proposed, purported statement, doesn't make a big uh, shift in this, the Israeli ratcheting up of direct attacks on Iranians in Syria uh, seems like it's, it's, it's calculated to have a similar effect. Because, you know, how many Iranians can be killed? And in the last attack, apparently, a, a bunch of Iranians were killed and a couple hundred missiles were destroyed. Um, how many times can the Israelis do this without the Iranians responding? And if the Iranians respond, doesn't that have an effect on on the the sort of the tenor uh, of of relations in the region and so on? It does have an effect on tenor of relations in the region. In my judgment, that effect is positive. Uh, I I have a 
different view on the Israeli attacks on Iranians in southern Syria than I do on the Israelis ostensibly pulling a rabbit out of their hat at the last minute to justify President Trump withdrawing from the JPCOA. On the, on the rabbit out of the hat business, I don't see how that will gain credence for what President Trump wants to do, because it will look so manifestly stage managed to rationalize pushing the United States towards an attack on the Iranian nuclear weapons programs that's advantageous to Israel, but in my judgment is not as advantageous to the United States as remaining in the JPCOA is advantageous. Whereas the situation in southern Syria, it, the Israeli Israeli attacks are, are legitimated based on Irani, Iranians' historic support for Hezbollah and Hamas, which continues, based on the fact that they are moving south in an effort to be further threatening to Israel, and the fact that the Syrian government, uh, which cannot control its territory, is uh, allied with the Iranians in doing this. I also think it's interesting that the Russians have have held fire as the Israelis do this, which I think shows the limits of, uh, of Russian-Iranian interest alignment in the region. I, I think it sends the right signal for the Israelis to say repeatedly that, uh, that Iran moving conventional forces into the neighborhood in ways that would threaten Israel is not something that Israel is going to stand for when the Iranians violate uh, Israeli airspace, for example, the shoot down of the drone or, uh, or engage in combat with Israeli forces. Um, Ed, I think of all of us, you were the most recently in Israel. Um, how were people framing the Israeli-Iranian relationship and their concerns about um, this JCPOA move? Oh, in ways that, that wouldn't surprise you. I mean, I, I should add that my trip to Israel um, uh, was not a national security-focused one. And, and what, what grabbed me more um, and what I was focusing more on was, uh, apart from a spa on, on the Sea of Galilee with my wife, was... Um, oh, yeah! visits for in which she she retraced the footsteps of jesus to 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 the spa and then back to the room um was I just um, asked, <laughs> did jesus go to a spa he had you guys he had stayed in the room feet. jesus stayed in he, he, he had his feet massaged do you, do you remember that ointment um but i don't, but I don't I remember but 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 i i, I well <laughs> imagine one of these places saying that they were offering the facial mask used by Jesus, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's at, at, at a premium. Um, but the the, um, the 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 Israeli, uh, you know, sort of opposition's view on how Netanyahu is playing this is that he wants to maintain the existential threat narrative for domestic political reasons, but uh, actual uh, actual clashes with Iran, you know, uh, uh, over and above striking. Hezbollah and other Iranian assets in Syria are not on his agenda. And so I think it's a very different um, prism uh, 
um, th through which um, Bibi's actions are filtered than, say, the you know the, the, the purely national security one we think of in Washington, uh, D.C. Um, okay. Now, David, I want to give you one of the big riddles of this whole thing, and and uh, and 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 I just like your your analysis of it because in the midst of all of this stuff. Um, with the Europeans trying to keep the U.S. into the deal and the U.S. looking like they're pulling out of the deal and the Israelis trying to, you know, nudge the U.S. into pulling out of the deal and the relationship of the deal in North Korea. One of the other interested parties that really hates the Iranians and wants them, you know, to be brought down by any means possible um, are, are the Saudis. And the and and the the, the crown prince of, of Saudi Arabia recently made a statement um, which to the effect that if the Palestinians weren't going to talk to the Israelis, then, you know, screw them. And, and it was kind of like, what? You know, it was a very unusual statement coming from um, the effective uh, leader uh, uh, of day-to-day -day activities in Saudi Arabia. And I'm just wondering, what do you, you know, what, what do you sense that's about? Well, you know, I, it's a really good question, David. My mind was still spinning at the thought of Ed Luce taking his wife to a spa and explaining that Jesus had stayed there. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was an easy sell. All I needed to say was they, massage. They merged magic words. They merged. Yeah, Jesus was irrelevant in this. Spa was the word. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, okay. they merchandise everything. When I was over there, I was really very tempted to uh, open up a kind of a delicatessen called Cheeses of Nazareth. Mm. <laughs> and you know, it's good that this this whole that this image has been in my mind because it's a better image for me to have in my mind than say Ed at the spa. Okay. Yeah, no. I, I just just have to be clear on this point, and for the record, I did not go anywhere near the spa. Oh, okay. I, I was walking on water at the time. <laughs> well done, Ed. Uh, although I have to tell you, I just, I really can envision Ed, you know, up to his chin in a bathtub full of holy mud while smoking a cigarette. You know, yeah, uh, that's, especially that's what it could ignite the mud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, uh, I, I should mention, sorry to go back to the previous conversation, I was very impressed by the fact that Kim Jong-un only had one cigarette in the entire three-hour banquet, and they'd set up a special ashtray for him and were expecting it to be filled. But he, he showed great, great, uh, great restraint. Wow. Okay, so that's his walking on water. That's it. Okay. Um, so anyway, back to David's question, which I yeah. think had to do with Saudi Arabia and why they were telling the Palestinians to get lost here. Um, you know, the... The Saudis have had this long-running, enormous frustration with Abbas as the um, Palestinian leader. You'll remember that the Saudi king had a peace plan he floated, oh, more than a decade ago that the Palestinians never even took up. It seems to be their view that the Palestinians don't really respect the Saudis' view as, of, of themselves as the leader of the of the region. And the, the essence of that message was, if you're not even going to go engage with the Americans about a possible uh, solution to the Israeli-Palestinian crisis, there's not a whole lot we can go do to back you up. So what does that tell you? It tells you that 
while years ago the Saudis found the Palestinian dispute to be politically useful to them as the key to all things in the Middle East, you know, if we can unlock the the Palestinian-Israeli problem, then we can solve every other problem around. Today, they view it almost as a sideshow to the main drama in the Middle East, which is the Saudis versus the Iranians and Sunni versus Shia. And um, I just thought that the statement over uh, or late last week or over the weekend was just the sort of culmination of where that has been moving for many years. Yes, I do, although I, I think it is also reflective of this kind of tectonic shift, and these are these are tectonic plates really below the surface, in which the the Saudis and the Israelis are are you know getting a little more comfortable with each other, um, uh, and recognize that they both have a common interest here, uh, and it may be the you know the you know enemy of my enemy is my friend, but. But there is something going on in the Saudi-Israeli relationship that's significant. Uh, I think it's sorry just to, to interrupt for a second. You know, the, the the one the one sort of element here in terms of Pompeo avoiding any Palestinian leaders and then refusing to meet him even if he hadn't um, is that we've got in two weeks from now the opening of the um, embassy site in Jerusalem. Uh, I think Jared Kushner is going to be doing it. Um, and we also have the big... The cheap, the very cheap embassy site that the president got to renovate for less than the price of a double-wide in Oklahoma. Exactly, considerably cheaper than the, <laughs> the, the, new, the new American embassy in, uh, in London. Please that, tell me uh, the embassy is going to be a double-wide from Oklahoma. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that, we, that also coincides with the the biggest Friday protests, uh, a, a day of return protests. And so, if, you know, the connection between uh, that in the same week that Trump may or may not pull the plug um, from the from the Iranian nuclear from the J, uh, JCPOA uh, is, I think, um, a fairly um, a fairly explosive brew. We get we're going to have. Uh, we're going to have a Jerusalem week that week. Yeah, no, no. I, everybody, you know, mark on your, you know, official deep state radio calendars, um, May 12th through 14th, because I think uh, the 12th is the JCPOA date and the 14th is the embassy opening date, uh, where at least we know Jared Kushner is going to be there. Maybe the president will be there. Uh, but also the... Uh, uprising at the border, the demonstrations at the border, which the Israelis have handled, if I may say, atrociously, um, and in ways that undermine and damage Israeli standing, um, uh, will all be sort of coming to a head at the same time. Um, Corey, in a, in a sort of a, 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 a twist here to all of this, um, Dan Shapiro, our former ambassador to Israel, has noted that if, for example, Netanyahu comes up with some Iranian violations of the JCPOA, that could be used as a reason to stay in the deal uh, and use the sanctions snapback within the deal, which could look tough on Trump's part uh, while still placating the Europeans and sending a message to the North Koreans that you could do a deal with the left. I, you know, that sounds a little too rational for Trump and company, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. 
So I agree that uh, the Trump administration is probably not fleet of foot enough to have done that on purpose. But I do think Europeans are concerned enough that the Trump administration is going to walk away from a deal that they consider um, central to their national security concerns and working, that they're worried enough that he's going to walk away from that, that that may be the only circumstance in which Europeans would actually be willing to use snapback sanctions. But I'm skeptical they will. I actually think um, the, the Israelis will not be believed by Germany, France, and Britain if they pull a rabbit out of their hat at the last moment in this regard. I mean, I defer to, to Ed and David, who cover these issues so ruthlessly as journalists, but if there's a big violation, the Iranians... Ruthlessly? Did you say ruthlessly? Yes, and I, and I say it with great admiration. <laughs> uh, yeah. That, that should just be for David. It's, I don't really cover these things, but thank you, Corey. Um, but he is ruthless. As yeah. uh, but I, but I'm, I'm ruthless in what I do cover. <laughs> that, uh, that, that if there is a big Iranian violation, how is it nobody got wind of it before 12 days before uh, Trump decertifies or pulls out of the Iran deal? It seems to me just way too convenient for Europeans to agree to snapback sanctions that penalize the Iranians for a problem they view the United States as having caused. Yeah, well, I mean, look, one of the things that could happen is that the Israelis could have talked to the U.S. They could say, look, it would be useful if you suggest that there's something afoot. If there's something afoot, we ought to investigate it. And, um, you know, that can punt the, the decision on May 12th conceivably in some other ways, too. I mean, it, the one thing, without knowing what's being said here, David, the one thing that seems likely is this is calculated to have an effect on the JCPOA uh, deliberations. That that's, seems likely, right? Uh, absolutely. And um, I'm really of the opinion that it could give the reason to stay inside the deal because the deal itself has extensive provisions for how you deal with an allegation of a violation. And there's a procedure and a panel that gets convened and an investigation and all that. And it could give Trump a way to start that process and then go out and tell the supporters at his you know, Michigan rallies, well, you know, I've gone after the Iranians for violating the deal while that's all being uh, adjudicated about whether or not there really was a violation. And, you know, I'm guessing that, you know, the Israelis have seen enough of this that they're not going to make something up out of whole cloth. But I think that Corey is just right. If there was a big violation underway and we all completely missed it, well, then, you know, clearly Ed should be fired from his job, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I resign. I resign. Wait a second. Ed is Ed is the 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 mud pack correspondent of the Financial Times. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. He's now doing spa reviews. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm I'm not going to even reply to that. (laughs) He's walking on water at the moment. He's not available. Uh, We've been doing this long enough, 90 plus episodes, that I heard a sharp intake of breath from you that suggested you had a comment. (laughs) Uh, But I had to do with Ed. (laughs) (laughs) No, I had not thought until David Sanger said it uh, that that the process argument may be an argument on which you can catch Europeans, which is, you know, show the Trump administration the process can work and that if the U.S. stays in the agreement. So it's a reasonable argument, but I just don't think I just don't think, you know, this this is going to look so much too convenient and the Israelis so much too complicit to an outcome that ends the JPCOA that I don't think the Europeans buy it. Um, well, yeah, I mean, they, they may not buy it. What we do know is that as we go through the next couple of weeks, um, we are going to see every day chess pieces moved around on a chessboard um, having to do with North Korea, its position, South Korea, its position, China's position, Japan's position, Russia's position with regard to that, the U.S.'s position, and it's going to intersect in some material ways with what's going on with Iran, Israel, Syria, Saudi Arabia, uh, and the Europeans. Um, And, you know, the one thing that I think is quite clear, and we've got to wrap up here in a minute, um, Ed, is that There are a number of players here who seem to have some track record of playing chess, and the president of the United States is not one of them. Yeah, although, you know, I I wouldn't necessarily include in in those chess-playing players that you mentioned um, the the European three, France, Germany, and Britain, who are as one on this, May, May, Macron, and Merkel, um, the three M's. Uh, spoke this this weekend uh, again about Trump's likely uh, pulling of the plug from the JCPOA. Europe, you know, uh, in different ways, Macron through flattery, Merkel through her uh, sort of deadpan style, uh, may fitfully have, have all been trying to understand what it is Trump needs that will keep him in this deal. And I think probably failing. Uh, Macron even said almost as much. Uh, at the same time, we've got this week, um, the the uh, the beginning supposedly of sanction of the um, uh, aluminium and steel and steel tariffs, um, you know, which hits directly at, at every principle of, um, of of trade that you know we've have, have underpinned transatlantic um, uh, trade deals for for decades. So we've got a Europe that's trying to understand Trump and failing. Uh, through various methods, uh, and um, a a potential transatlantic split here. But it doesn't, you know, the chess-playing tactics of of Macron uh, have have yet to be borne out in practice. I don't think they're going to work. I don't think flattering Trump gets you very far for very long. David, who, who, if this were a chess match, who are you giving the edge to right now? Hmm, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, first of all, Trump is playing a much savvier game here now. Uh, you may not like the outcomes of it, but, you know, Bolton knows these issues very well. 
and uh, he has been around the players a lot more than any of the other uh, people who were in the previous cabinet were, including H.R. McMaster and certainly uh, Secretary Tillerson. Pompeo knows the players, and I have to say that no matter what you think of his politics, his, the idea that he got sworn in the other day immediately drove to Andrews Air Force Base and took off on this tour and basically spoke with tremendous confidence to the press at sort of each stop about what was going on, tells you that they finally got a team in place of people who know all of the different players involved. And that opens up some opportunities for them. It opens up also some opportunities to make big hawkish mistakes. And, and that's the line that they're walking right now, both on the Iran stuff, certainly on North Korea. Um, the question is, do they overplay their hand? Now, you know, I want to give you the last word here, Corey. And I was thinking that, you know, we really need to get sound effects on this show. And we're going to have to talk to our intrepid producer, Ian, about this. Because whenever, you know, you go and reach for the tiara of optimism, <laughs> I would like to have, like, little twinkling bell sounds, like little fairy bells, you know, that, that we, we go and Okay, we several deep state nerds actually posted in my Twitter feed uh, what this tinkling sound of me reaching for the tiara of optimism ought to be, David. So we've already got that. Ian All just right. needs well, to work Ian, it into the Ian show. Should, you should look for it. And then, of course, there is the countervailing sound that goes with Rose's heavy crown of entropy. But, <laughs> you know, the, a Prairie Home Companion has gone off the air, and they used to have the best sound effects guys. Do we have the budget, David, to get him for Deep State Radio? Well, I'm curious about that, but I, I, what I, th I think we can do is buy a couple of coconut shells in case we ever need to have horse hooves. <laughs> oh, okay. That's within the budget, right? <laughs> that is, yeah. Well, there's one coconut, and then you cut it in half. But, <laughs> but um, anyway, as, as the final point here, Corey, I do want to give you a chance in, to say in an optimistic way, picking up on David's point, that whatever one may think of Mike Pompeo's politics, and personally, I'm not so fond of him. Um, uh, he certainly has hit the ground running in a way Tillerson never managed in his whole tenure. I mean, uh, he actually- Oh my God, absolutely. Yeah, so it's, I just want you to give him some props here because he's actually behaving like a secretary of state, whether you like his policies or not. That's exactly right. And um, he, so the first thing is he did the consultations right in the run-up to his confirmation hearings. He not only reached out to the former secretaries of state, he reached out to foreign service officers who have resigned uh, since President Trump took office and since Rex Tillerson became secretary of state. He immediately got on an airplane and went to a NATO meeting then went on to the Middle East. I think he went to Tel Aviv and to Riyadh and to Amman, Jordan as well, a place frequently overlooked, um, but hugely important to the success of what the United States would like to see happen in the Middle East. I, I think it's great. He's logging lots of air miles. He is showing his priorities by where he's showing up at. And whether or not you like his, and I'm sorry, I should also add, He's meeting with embassy staff and their families every place he touches down, which also Rex Tillerson astonishingly uh, did not do. 
So and, he, and he's bringing the media along with him and actually talking. Yes, thank you. Bringing the media along with him as well. He's acting like an American Secretary of State who understands that that making our case in public to allies and empowering the people who are his representatives around the world is a better way to run the department than Rex Tillerson locking himself in a tower and walking around in circles. I, I did notice coming back from Korea that the pool reports coming from the secretary's plane indicated there were eight reporters aboard, which was you know up from one or two during Tillerson's time. It gradually expanded. And that it included the failing New York Times and the Amazon Washington Post. Um, <laughs> well, you know, fake, fake, fake pull reports. That's what they were. <laughs> well, those are right. But, but that's all something. I, and I think, you know, one of the things we must be most grateful for is that he seems to have given um, a, a pronounced tip check to the Middle East leadership of Jared Kushner. Um, and seems to be taken over that portfolio. Yeah, I think having somebody that the president actually trusts and feels like he has an alignment of views with does return power to Foggy Bottom. Um, well, that's all good news. I'm sorry to end this episode on bad news, which I've just seen from USA Today. But uh, apparently, according to the headline, scientists are miserable after the world's oldest known spider has died at the age of 43, uh, they were hoping she could have. <laughs> he was he was listening to a foreign policy podcast at the time. Right? Yeah. And, and died off. of ennui. Yeah. Oh wow, that's a little harsh. Um, uh, I was actually just channeling the Edward Gorey alphabet. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. No, that's very good. And I know that David meant Pod Save America. Anyway. Um, <laughs> in any event, um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for this episode of um, Deep State Radio. We will be back later in the week. Hopefully Rosa will be back with us later in the week. Do pre-order David's book, The Perfect Weapon. Yay! Uh, nothing to do with Corey Shockey. Um, <laughs> you know, you can buy Corey's book and Ed's book too. Right? And say, if you order them all together, they'll only charge you three times as much. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's the deep state um, markup that we, we put onto everything. But um, it's the same technique that's used for uh, Pentagon budgeting purposes. In, <laughs> in, in any event, everybody, thank you very much. We'll talk to you later in the week. Thank you, David. Thank you, Ed. And thank you, Corey. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.